It's great to be here again this morning. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Chris. I'm part of the leadership team here. And I'll be speaking to us this morning on our series of 1 Corinthians. If I'm a little bit more animated this morning, if I'm walking around a bit more, uh, I got a new fitness band for my birthday. I've really got to get my steps up. Uh, it reminds me like every half an hour if I haven't moved. Um, so I get up from what I'm doing, but it's not really working because every time I get up to move, I seem to just naturally gravitate to the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> so every half an hour I'm like, oh, Easter eggs. <laughs> um, so it's not really working yet, but it will. It'll get there. It'll get there. I feel like I'm, with this mic on as well, I feel like I'm about to lead an exercise class or something, but um, I'm not going to do that. Um, let me just pray for us before we start. Lord God, it is a privilege to be here this morning, Lord. It's a privilege, Lord, to be in your presence. And we thank you for what we, we've already heard from you this morning, Lord, about your faithfulness and your promises and your goodness to us, Lord. We thank you for the truth that we've already heard and soaked ourselves in this morning. And I pray that as, as I speak now, Lord, you'll just soak us in even more truth. And you'll change us, continue to change us, Lord. Continue to speak to us and just help us to grow and grow and grow more in love with you uh, as we continue this morning together. I pray you'll bless, uh, bless this, this word, Lord. I pray you'll help me to communicate it well. Amen. Okay. So we're back into 1 Corinthians, and we're nearly there. This is the penultimate um, session on Corinthians, and we're in 1 Corinthians 15, and it's uh, verses 50 to 58. And if you remember, um, what we've been looking at in this chapter really has been all about the resurrection. So this is the fourth in a, in a series of four, I guess, on the resurrection. And we've, had, um, we've looked at the fact that the resurrection of Jesus is real, that it actually happened. And that, that really means something very, very significant for us as Christians. It is, you know, Christianity doesn't work without a risen Jesus. And then we've seen Paul really trying to earth that and talk about not only Jesus' resurrection, but the resurrection that is to come. And that is our resurrection, that one day in the future, we don't know when, but we will be raised to new resurrection life ourselves. And Paul's been really trying to hammer home to the Corinthians, guys, this is happening. And, but actually, they've been going a bit astray. They've been, they've been wading away from it a bit, asking some of the wrong questions and just, just getting confused in their thinking. And Matt brought a really good work last week. Uh, remember his, his theme? I'll try and do it in Matt's voice. He was, he was, Paul was telling him to, to pipe down. Pipe down, guys. Like, I've, was, that, was that any good? I made you into like a cockney gangster there. <laughs> Nothing like Matt at all. But Paul was Paul saying, pipe down, guys. Like, this is, you need to hear this. This is the truth about resurrection. This is what you need to know. It's happening. It's coming. And it's going it's to be glorious. But what, what Matt also looked at last week is that actually it's very hard to look at resurrection because what we're talking about is something that hasn't happened yet. It's in the future. It's to come. And whenever we talk about something we haven't seen yet, hadn't happened, and that isn't normal, it's quite difficult, isn't it, to really grasp hold of and really get it, let it to sink in. But it's absolutely imperative to our faith. If we have no focus on the future, if we have no focus on what is to come, then what is the point of Christianity? If we have no sense of where we're going, without a promise of afterlife, of eternity with God, then what is Christianity to us today? Is, is it not just, it's just a moral code, something to try and live your life by and, and do good, but where's, where's it going to? That's why it's so important that we have this right in our heart of, of where we're heading. And a sure faith should give us real hope. 
of something much greater to come. And knowing this stuff really should deeply change our whole outlook and our whole journey through life. So I want to encourage you this morning, whether you're 18, whether you're 80, whether you're a believer of many, many years or not a believer at all and you're just checking things out, I believe this passage and this book as a whole, but this passage really has something important for every single one of us because it matters to us. And there will be a moment in your life or the end of your life when what we talk about in this passage will apply directly to every single person today, not just in this room, but all over the world. So this is for everyone, I hope. So let's read the passage without any further ado. got my new Bible, another birthday present. Thank you very much, Ken and Ruth. Um, snazzy, isn't it? No, no one's going to know that's not my Bible. Nice color. Okay, so uh, chapter 15. Yeah, I think it's quite masculine, Matt. It's, it's blue. Um, <laughs> powder blue. That's orange. That's not pink. <laughs> right, I'm reading the Bible, guys. Leave me alone. <laughs> Verse 50 onwards, okay? I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory. Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Okay, really important passage, some really famous verses in that. I'm sure you'll recognize some of the words from that passage. Let's, let's try and unpack what it tells us about this resurrection that is to come. The first thing it tells us is that this resurrection, that our resurrection, hasn't happened yet. It is something that will happen to every believer, both alive and dead. Those who are alive today, those who died a thousand years ago, it will happen but not yet. Paul isn't talking about what happens straight away when we die. Like if I die today, he's not talking about that, what happens in that immediate instance. This is something that's going to happen when Jesus returns. The resurrection of the dead, the resurrection into a new life, is something that will happen when Jesus fulfills his promise to return and to, live, uh, to come again. And we know that because Paul talks about in that in these passages, he talks about those being asleep and those alive, and it's happening to them, to everyone. Now, I believe that those people who are, as Paul says, asleep, those people who are dead, my belief is that in spirit, they are with Jesus right now. 
I'm confident of that. That Jesus even says to the, the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. That thief on the cross, his body may well be in the grave, but in, in, in spirit, he's with Jesus. And, and there's more evidence of that to back that up later as well. So it's not something that's happened yet to the body, but it's going to happen. And that moment is still to come. And when it happens, those who have died will be raised up to new life. And those who are living at that time will also be raised up to a brand new life in Jesus. And Paul talks about it elsewhere as well. Perhaps the most key passage is in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So we know we're talking about something in the future here. Because we're talking about awaiting a savior, awaiting Jesus. Jesus has already lived and died and risen again once, but he's going to come again. And at that point, when he comes again, he will transform our lowly bodies, whether they're alive or dead at that time, he will transform them into something new. It hasn't happened yet, but it will. This world won't stay as it is forever. Something big is going to happen. Jesus himself has promised to return. If you look in Matthew 25, and there's lots more verses we can choose about this, but in Matthew 25, Jesus talks himself about the Son of Man, that's him, coming in his glory, and all the angels with him. And he will sit on his glorious thrones and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now Jesus is going to come back and he will judge. He will judge. He will look at everyone who's ever lived and he will make a judgment. Are you with me? Did you live for me? Did you decide that I was your savior or did you not? And it's going to come. And there will be a resurrection life. But the Bible tells us that only those people who have accepted Jesus as, as Lord will enjoy that resurrection life with him. Will be raised to something new in heaven. In the new earth with him. And those who haven't made that decision, those who haven't put their faith in, in Jesus, face the prospect of something much bleaker. An eternity without him the worst possible scenario eternity separated from a loving creator wonderful God which doesn't sound too good to me so there's a choice to be made for everyone in their life on earth a choice between the offer of something undeserved but remarkably good that is grace that is the gospel salvation by faith and something which is completely deserved, punishment, and that isn't so good. And that choice is based very simply on what we decide about who Jesus is. Is he the Son of God who sacrificed himself on a cross that we might be forgiven for our sins and have our relationship with God restored? Or do we just think he was a guy who said some crazy stuff and then disappeared into history? That's the choice we have as humans And that is the choice that will affect what happens when Jesus comes again. So it hasn't happened yet. The resurrection to new life hasn't happened yet. We're still, if we're sitting here today, we're still in our our original bodies. But there's something better to come.
what does this passage tell us about resurrection life? Well, Paul says it's a mystery. It's a mystery. But it does tell us something about it. And it's really hard when you explain a mystery to try and get your head around it. That, it's a mystery. <laughs> to try and explain something that is unusual to us, that isn't really something that we see regularly in human life. It's very, very hard to get our head around, but Paul has a go. And actually, seeing what happened to Jesus in his resurrection helps us to understand a little bit about what I believe our resurrection will be like. But we don't know the full picture. The first thing we learn is that we will be changed. That's what Paul says. When we are raised to new life, there'll be something different about us, something markedly different about us, fundamentally different about us. We will not be completely the same as we are again. It won't be simply rising from the dead, exactly how we died. There'll be a fundamental change. And that fundamental change is that we will be imperishable. We will be immortal. That's what it says. The perishable will put on the imperishable. Mortality. We'll be clothed in immortality, not immorality. I keep saying immorality. <laughs> Actually, something that was destined to die will become something that lives forever, is what he's saying. And there can't be a much bigger change than that, can there? Like we as humans, we all know that one day, as we are today, we are approaching at some point death. That's, that's life <laughs> on our planet, is that things die. But our new resurrection bodies will not. They're permanent. They're forever. There's something markedly different about them. And actually, we can see in Jesus, when he rose from the dead, actually, a lot of people, when they met him for the first time, they didn't immediately recognize him. There was something different about him that prevented people from straight away knowing that was him. When Mary met him in the garden, she thought he was the gardener. She didn't realize straight away that it was Jesus. When he, when he walked with the, some of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they were kept from recognizing him. They didn't realize, despite spending a whole day with him, until, until the moment he broke some bread, they didn't twig that it was Jesus. Even though he was raised again, it was Jesus himself again, like they'd spent all this time with him, there was something different about him. Matt talked last week about seeds. And I think that's a helpful analogy for here as well. In that, there will be, when, when you plant a seed, and it grows into the plant, the plant doesn't look like the seed, and yet it's from that seed. But there's a consistency between the seed and the plant. For example, if you plant a mustard seed, you're not going to grow a rose. If you plant an oak seed, you're not going to grow a tulip. There's a consistency between the seed and the fruit and the plant. But there's something markedly different as well. You, know, you don't look at a seed and think, well, that's a rose. You know what I mean? It's a helpful way of looking at it. And that's important because we will be, we will be the same, but we'll also be different. And we'll be different, but we'll also be the same. So our resurrection bodies, while there is a difference from, from what we left behind, there is also something recognizable. And that, the language that Paul uses is really helpful because he talks about being re, reclothed. So something mortal putting on immortality it's not a complete redesign 
it's not a complete start from scratch, wipe everything out, let's, let's, let's create something completely different because that just didn't work. No, it's, there's a template. Matt talked about stencils. There's a template there that is used. And it makes sense if you think back to creation. God created us. And what did he say about what he created? It is good. It is good. And when God declares something good, it is good. And he doesn't need to go back completely to the drawing board. He doesn't need to get rid of what he made because it wasn't good enough. But God said it was good. So there's going to be a consistency. And although Jesus, to some people, immediately wasn't recognizable, he didn't come back as some weird monster with 16 arms and 12 legs because that was way better than being human. He came back in a recognizable human form. And he ate and he drank like any other human being. So while there will be a difference in our resurrection bodies, there's also going to be a consistency to what we've seen already. You see why Paul says it's a mystery. (laughs) It's a bit odd, isn't it? And it's hard to get our heads around. It can be the same but different. (laughs) It's a bit of an odd thing. But that's what Paul's telling us here. And it is going to happen. So that's what the passage is getting at. But how should we feel about what Paul is telling us? Paul's response is quite interesting. And it puts me in mind, no one will be surprised to hear, but it puts me in mind of football. (laughs) Everything puts me in mind of football, guys. You You know me by now. Often when I go and watch Everton play, (laughs) I'll sit and watch the game. And Evertonians, by nature, are fairly quiet when they're watching football. Just being honest, we like to watch the game, soak it all in, watch what's happening. We respond to what's happening on the pitch, but we're not on our feet singing and chanting the whole time. We like to take the game in, sit and watch, see what happens. If Everton score, then we go absolutely crazy and we sing songs. But until that moment, we just kind of drink it in and enjoy the game and see what unfolds. But when you go to a football match, you've got, you know, there's 40,000 people at Everton, 38,000 but there'll be a couple of thousand away fans, fans from the other team who've come to watch the game. What happens every single week is the away fans start singing songs designed to really, really annoy the Everton fans. Yeah, it does happen. Those innocent, poor Everton fans get, get taunted. And they'll sing things like, you know, your stadium is rubbish, in, in, in other words. you know, I'm not, I'm not going to quote exactly what they sing, because it's not very pleasant. They'll sing things about scousers being uh, on the dole. They'll sing, sign on, sign on, with hope in your heart, you'll never get a job. And they'll sing, in your Liverpool slums. And they'll sing, you're rubbish fans, you're not singing, why aren't you singing? Can you hear the scousers sing? No, I can't hear a thing. And, and Again, I've... Reduce the language a bit there. And they'll sing and they'll sing and they'll sing. And us Evertonians just sit there getting grumpier and grumpier. And at first it's just like a mild sort of, oh, here they go again. After a while, it starts to eat away at you a bit. It's a bit like, well, maybe they're right. Maybe Liverpool is a bit rubbish. Maybe maybe we're not very good fans. We don't sing many songs, actually. Maybe, maybe we'd be better fans if we sang more songs. They're singing all the time and we're not really... I'm not a very good fan, really, am I? Like, I'm a bit rubbish. After a while, you start to get really, really a bit down, actually. Until the inevitable moment, which happens every single time, (laughs) without fail, Everton score. Get in. (laughs) But that wasn't a home game, Jack. It was away, so it's all right. (laughs) Everton score. And we jump up and we celebrate and we sing and we dance and we shout. 
and we do all sorts of crazy things that we'd never do at home. And then when the excitement dies down, we look over at the away fans and they're quiet and they've stopped singing. And then it's our turn. You're not singing, you're not singing, you're not singing anymore. Ah, oh, feels so good. <laughs> Every time to taunt them and rub it in their faces that they're not winning. And we are, and they're not skitting us anymore because we've scored a goal and they haven't. And we're Everton and we're brilliant. And it's lovely. It's quite puerile, I know. I know it's ridiculously childish. And I should know better at 34. But there's something really satisfying about that moment of joy. That seeing a once very plucky and confident and in-your-face enemy being silenced. I say enemy, I know it's only football, but you know what I mean. You know, they're still there. But they've lost something. They've lost their their force and their power. And, and suddenly their words aren't hurting us anymore because... They've gone quiet and, and they were wrong anyway because Everton are great. And, you know, and despite the fact I wasn't on the pitch and I didn't score a goal, <laughs> I didn't do anything to change the situation. The, uh, the, the Everton players did that. But I'm suddenly joyful and happy and, and my enemy is not. It may seem like a really silly analogy. Thank you for staying with it if you have. If you haven't, I'm sorry. Come back to me when you're ready. Um, but in verse 54, there's something of that in Paul's words to death death has been swallowed up in victory where oh death is your victory where's your sting death where's it gone he's taunting death he's saying to death you've got nothing mate you think you scare me you think I'm worried about you no chance where's it gone you've got nothing Paul is joyfully securely taunting a vanquished enemy. Death has had its moment for Paul. It struck fear into humanity for way too long. But now, because of Jesus' death and then his resurrection, death is no longer a powerful force. It doesn't any longer have a frustration for Paul. It's a vanquished opponent. Death has lost its sting. And Paul tells us that actually the sting of death itself, what is that sting? Well, it's sin. That's what the sting of death is. It's sin. And the power of death is the law. And with those things, sin and the law, death can hold power over mankind. Because if when we, when we die, if when death comes, we are sinful and we're found to be in sin, then when Jesus comes again, as I said before, to judge, then death is a terrible thing. Because we'll be judged guilty because of the sin. As, as Chris illustrated last week with the bow and arrow trying to hit the target, sin is missing the mark, missing the standard that God set. And if we're in that position, if, if, if when it comes to death that we've missed that mark, then death's awful. <laughs> it's not a place we want to be. And the reason we know we're sinful is because of the law. That's what he says is the power of death is the law. It's the law which we measure up against. And it's the law that we can determine ourselves against as to whether we're sinful or not. And guarantee you, every single one of us, when we measure up against God's law, we will be found sinful. And so that, that gives death a sting. When death comes and sees us, say, ha, you're a sinner. Just wait till you die. There's no hope for you. 
And like those away fans at Goodison Park, death taunts us. You sinner. You failure. You worthless person. You've let God down. Your life's worthless. You'll never amount to anything. What's the point? You can't get right with God. You can't do enough good things to get right with God when you die. You're heading for destruction. He can't love you. You're too dirty. You're too sinful. You're not good enough. Why would God love you? Or even worse still, it downright lies to us. Your life's meaningless. You live, you die, that's it. Just accept it, just get on with it. You don't need God. What can he offer you? You might as well just live your life and roll the dice and see what happens at the end. Just enjoy yourself, you don't need him. And that's what death does. Just eats away at us and tells us these things. That it's coming. That death's on its way and there's nothing we can do about it. And that is the end. But just like that moment when Everton score, there's a moment in history where death is silenced. When it loses its sting. When Jesus was brutally murdered, he was deader than something really dead. (laughs) Like, he was absolutely beaten and punished and whipped and scorned and stabbed and just everything. He couldn't have been more dead. And yet, two mornings later, he was alive. He is alive. Death is beaten. Death is swallowed up in victory. And not only that, in dying, Jesus removed the power of death. He removed the law. He fulfilled the law. So that we don't have to fulfill it ourselves. Jesus, is in his perfection, fulfilled the law for us. And so when we die... We're not in that. If we've accepted Jesus' sacrifice for us, if we've accepted that He's taken our punishment, there is no sting. Because sin is dealt with. The sting of death is gone, removed decisively forever. And we can turn to death and say, You're not stinging anymore. Like that. <laughs> You're not stinging anymore, death. I know that's really corny. I know. I'm sorry. Indulge me. Um, You're not stinging anymore. It's not happening. That's what this passage does for us. That's what the truth of the gospel does for us. That's what Paul's getting at. Does that make sense? So what, what does this mean for us then? What, what is this? Okay, we, we've understood that at some point we're going to be raised to a new life. And we've understood, hopefully, that death has lost its sting. And that there's something better coming. That when we die, it's not the end. But actually, we still know that as humans, we will face death in this world, more than likely. So what is our perspective to be on the reality that people die in this world? We can't just dismiss it and take it too lightly. Jesus himself, when he lost his friend Lazarus, even though he rose, he raised him from the dead himself, he wept when he found out that Lazarus had died. Death, death stung Jesus at that point. It mattered to Jesus that his friend had died. So, We don't need to be blasé about death. Death is tragic. But to the believer, to us as Christians, anyone who's accepted Jesus, death is a beginning and not an ending. And Paul says elsewhere that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let me try and unpack that for you. In other words, to live is Christ-like. It's beautiful. It's brilliant. 
Jesus was the most wonderful, fulfilled human being. And to live is to just, oh, thank you, Lord. What a privilege, what a joy to live. It's brilliant. There's nothing wrong with living. It's fantastic. It's a pleasure and a blessing. But to die, whoa, that's gain. That's even better because when we die, we get to be with God. We get to be with Jesus permanently, forever. There's something actually better than this. This isn't it. Actually, when we die, we gain true life. And we go from being these mortal, perishable, faulty human beings to ultimately, when Jesus returns, being raised up into something new and better. In dying, we gain. Because we get to rise to something new and better. And Paul, I haven't got time to read the passage, but in 2 Corinthians 5, and I urge you to have a look at this later, Paul actually talks through, effectively, what his, his preferences are. In light of what he knows about resurrection and new life, Paul tells us what his, his preferences would be. Do you know what Paul's first preference, if Paul could choose where he was and what he was doing, Paul's first preference is, God, take me now. I don't want to go through death, actually. Take me now as I am. Catch me up into my new resurrection body. I want it now. I want that right now, God. I want to be with you in new life forever from this moment on. Do it now, God. That was Paul's heart. Do it now. Please. If he couldn't have that, his second, his second preference was, okay, God, I'd rather be dead now. If I'm going to die, I'd like to die now so that my body's in the grave and my spirit goes to be with you straight away until that day when you come back and you raise me into a new body. That's what I want now. Right now, I want to be, however it takes, whatever it takes, I want to be with you. That's where I want to be. That is my heart. That's my desire is to be with you. So please, Lord, if that's what it is, take me now. I'll die now. I'll be with you in spirit until you raise me again. Make sense? And it's their preference. It's okay if it's not the time, Lord then I will live my life by faith for you until such day as you do what you do. That was the way Paul viewed things. And I think that's quite radical and quite different probably. I don't know about anyone else. To me, that's... You know, I'm quite attached to this world actually. I've got two beautiful kids, another one on the way hopefully. Hopefully hopefully it'll be a third beautiful kid. Um, I've got a wonderful wife. I enjoy my life. And the thought of leaving those things behind doesn't massively appeal to me sometimes, if I'm honest. Like, I want to see my kids grow up. I want to see what George becomes and what Chloe becomes and what little bump number three becomes. I want to see, I want to see them become, you know, followers of Jesus themselves and see what, see what they, they're going to do. I want to get to that moment of retirement with Debbie when all our responsibilities are over and we're having just like, we're going traveling the world. Like, I want, I want to experience that. There's so much in this world that I want to experience. Actually, I'm quite attached to it. And deep down, if you asked me, what would you, what would you like to do? I, I, like, I feel there's a part of me that would say, yeah, I quite want to see how this turns out. I don't really want to leave this world. And I think there's a, I think that's how we are quite a lot of the time. And what I find when reading New Testament, especially the early church and Paul, is that they seem to live in a way that held onto this earth very loosely because there was an expectation that Jesus would return any day. Any day now. He's coming. Such was their faith. Such was their, you know, they'd lost Jesus once. He died. And he came back after two days, three days. 
He was back with him. So why wouldn't he come back soon again? He said he's coming back. He'll be back any day now. And so they lived with an urgency for him. As I say, Paul's preference, it's interesting, his preference was to be in his new resurrection body now. His second preference was to be dead and be with God in spirit until he got his new resurrection body. His third preference was just to live his life. But he didn't get down in the dumps about that. He didn't say, well, I'll just sit at home and just wait patiently and see what God does. Paul was the most fruitful man. Probably one of the most fruitful Christians in the world ever. Look what he achieved. He lived his life sold out for God. With the perspective of, I know where I'm going. And it could be any day now. And until I'm there, I'm just going to live in the, in the truth of that hope. And I'm going to tell everyone I meet about that. Because I want them to come with me. And I know that that is the best thing anyone could ever have. And he held on to the world very loosely. Because he knew none of this could be taken with him. Whatever wealth he accumulated, whatever, um, whatever things he, he, he achieved in his life, actually was going to be way surpassed by what he was going to enjoy in the next life. But I think we're 2,000 years removed from that now. And somewhere along the line, I wonder if we've got a little bit What's the word? Not, maybe not lazy, but we've started to think, do you know what? It's been 2,000 years now. Jesus probably isn't coming anytime soon. So uh, let's just get really stuck into, into this worldly stuff because you know, there's no guarantee that there'll be anything after this, really. You know, he hasn't come yet. Is he, is he coming? How long is he going to be? Like, I'm just going to maximize what I can get here on this earth. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just build up riches. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just take what I can from this earth. Take, take, take. I want to get the best life I can possibly have because who knows how it's going to turn out. That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us it is absolutely true. We're going to something better, guys. And when we get there, you look back on this life and think, don't want to go back there again. Like, as wonderful as it is, as, as, as much joy that I get from my kids and my family... It's not even going to begin to compare to the joy of being with my Father. Of being with Jesus and worshipping Him face to face. And thanking Him for what He's done in my life. And there's a perspective change there actually. My, my grandfather died at 97. After being a vicar, parish priest for 40, 50 years. And he had a, he quite, had a quite a long drawn out death, to be honest. He, he clung on and clung on and clung on. And actually, it became clear to my dad, who was at his bedside, dad's a vicar as well, that my granddad had no certainty of where he was going. He was petrified of death. After all those years serving God, for somehow the truth and the certainty and the hope that should have been his wasn't there. And that probably more than anything hurt my dad <laughs> to see his father like that. So that this guy, he, he's ministered for 50 years and he has no sense of where he's going to, that it's better. He's petrified of dying. He clung on stubbornly to life for so long. I don't want any of us to end up like that. don't want any of us to be in that position. We need to know, we need to know where we're going. And to know that it's true and to cling to that. And to know actually, do you know, death is going to happen one day. But I don't need to be afraid. 
I don't need to be afraid because of the promises of God to us over our lives. For Paul, the promise of resurrection is a firm foundation because it answers the biggest question mark that any of us can have over our life. That big question mark of what's this all about? Where am I going? What's after this? It's answered. We know. We're going to live a new life with God. And if that question is answered, then everything else should fall into line. And we should be able to find hope in the darkest points of our lives. Knowing that as dark as this gets down here, we're assured of something perfect. And we can minister to people and to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Knowing that our labor is not in vain. And that as we live and work to Jesus' glory, we know we're sowing seeds for the kingdom and we're bringing more people with us. That we're giving people eternity-changing news. It should change our whole attitude to life. I want to finish with this. It's not my quote. I pinched it somewhere else and I've not referenced where I got it from. Don't tell me off. Hope is hearing the music of the future. Faith is dancing to it today. As Christians, we have hope. We have hope that we are going to be with God. We have hope that we are saved. And we can hear that. But faith is dancing to that today. And living that out today. And living our lives in the light of that truth. That certainty of where we're going. Not just thinking it in the back of our minds and hoping that that might work out for us one day. But knowing that it's true. And living our lives in the light of it. That is what we are called to in this passage. Make sense? I'd love us to worship, guys. To, uh, to respond to that in worship. This is amazing news. This is truth. Every single one of us who has put our faith in Jesus is promised a new life with him. And every single person who hasn't done that has the option of it. If you're here this morning and you haven't made that choice to live for God, this is what you get. You don't get all your problems here solved in an instant. I can't promise you that. But I can promise you a day when you'll be raised to new life, to immortality, to perfection, to joy, to be with Jesus. And that is wonderful news. So let's get on our feet and let's worship God and let's praise him for what he has done.